Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's good to have you here at Crosswinds on the Spirit Lake campus. It's great that you're able to join us. And we have a special emphasis during our this summer. It's called, uh, Don't Just Attend Church, But Be the Church. And you may wonder, why did we come up with this special emphasis of not just attending the church, but being the church? And it actually has to do with our studies in the book of 1 Timothy that we've been doing this summer, where Paul says about the church, it's not just a place that you attend, but it's a family to which you belong. And it's a place where you should be able to go in the doors, and there's people who genuinely care about you. And so if you're a visitor today, I really hope that you experience that. That, uh, that the Crosswinds family, you feel genuinely cares about you. And you're loved and welcomed, not to a place you just attend, but to a family where you belong. Now, there were ten specific action steps we tried to challenge ourselves with this summer. And I promised that every Sunday I would begin by reminding you of one of those action steps and sort of keeping us on track. And this morning... I'd like to remind you of the fourth action step, which had to do with social media. So all you social media junkies, this one is for you. And that is if you meet somebody in church, make sure you friend them on your social media accounts, whether that's Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook. It's just a way of saying, hey, I not only enjoyed talking to you at church, but I'd love to keep in contact with you and be warm and friendly and welcoming. So I just want to remind you that we would keep on track with that. Well, this morning is our next to last message in the book of 1 Timothy. Next week is the last message of the book of 1 Timothy. And in that message, Paul is going to be talking about wealth and how Christians use wealth. It will be a very practical message. I'd encourage you to make sure that you are here for that message next week. Uh, Today, we're looking at some of Paul's final words to Timothy. And he is going to be talking to Timothy, and he is going to be charging him and commanding him to be a good pastor. Timothy, I love you. Be a good pastor there in the church of Ephesus. And Before we put our finger in the text and begin to work our way through these words of Paul to Timothy, um, you need to understand the relationship between Paul and Timothy and the church of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring. First of all, you need to remember that Paul actually planted the church in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city. As we've seen before, it is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Very large city, and it also has a mega church of literally thousands of people. And Paul has sent Timothy, in his absence, to pastor the church there. Now, here's what's interesting. Timothy is a very young man. He's an inexperienced man. He's just a little bit over the age of 30. But Timothy has really everything he does need to be a good pastor of this church. Timothy's a man who knows God's Word. He grew up, you could say, in a Christian home with his mother and his grandmother being women of faith. But most interestingly, we know that prior to being sent here, for the 14 years before this, Timothy was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. 
eating breakfast together every day for 14 years, lunch together, <laughs> dinner together, talking theology day in and day out, hearing the Apostle Paul preach for 14 years. I mean, the closest thing to a walking photocopy of the Apostle Paul is who? Timothy. I mean, he knows exactly what Paul would say, exactly what Paul would think, exactly what Paul would do. But why Paul and Timothy are virtual photocopies of one another in that sense, they're very different men. Paul can be rather strong and, and very forceful, especially in his letters. But Timothy, at least we see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Timothy is timid. That's where we get the word timid in the English. It comes from Timothy. He is shy. He is reserved. He is very soft-spoken. And this soft-spoken man who is theologically well-trained really has his hands full, as we have seen. Because the church of Ephesus is a church that is not flying straight. We've seen in previous weeks that there's a number of people, just for novelty, have begun to distort the gospel and sensationalize the gospel and change it away from what the apostles and what Jesus Christ have taught is the gospel. Timothy has to bring it back before it completely veers off course. Other people in the church have sort of fallen into what's called a health, wealth, and prosperity movement. Not the, necessarily the modern version, but an ancient version of this, where they're preaching the gospel for money, for fame. And Timothy has to correct this and bring this all back in line. And so Paul has been sent this letter to Timothy, and Paul here in the final section of this book is charging Timothy, Timothy! Be a good pastor. And the tone of this is Paul is talking to Timothy like a son. Like a son he loves. The son who has been with him for 14 years, day in and day out. Who is carrying now his baby, the church of Ephesus that he planted. And in these final words, he's telling Timothy how to be a good pastor. So, directly, these words, of course, apply to Timothy. These words this morning, of course, also really apply to modern-day pastors who are also trying to learn how to be a good pastor and lead a church well. But don't think these words don't apply to you. Because the truth is, the vast majority of everything we're going to say this morning is what it means to be a good Christian leader. Whether you're leading worship whether you're leading a Crosswinds University class, Crosswinds Academy class for kids, VBS, or even if you're just a life group leader, what does it mean to be a good leader for Jesus Christ in His church? That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's dive right in. The first thing we see is this. A good pastor speaks God's words. Speaks God's words. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, as we begin, there's a really interesting title that Paul gives to Timothy. He calls him a man of God. And 
typically when I've read through this passage, I just skimmed right through that and didn't really think there was much to that until I did some study. And all of a sudden I realized there's very rich background to the title, Man of God. In fact, the first time we see it used is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 1. If it's not 1, it's verse 11. I forget which one it is right now. But it's used to describe Moses. Moses was God's man to speak God's words to God's people in his time and in his generation. That's what it meant for Moses to be a man of God. And then that title, man of God, was picked up and used a number of times throughout the Old Testament by a variety, and given as a name to a variety of people. Samuel was called a man of God. Elijah was then called a man of God. Elisha was called a man of God. David was called a man of God. Men who were called, called by God, chosen by God to speak His words to His people in their time and their generation. It's a very rich title, a very high calling. But then you get to the New Testament, it's sort of silence. You don't find it being used except when Paul credits it to Timothy, right here. And what he's saying is, Timothy, you fall in line with the men called by God of the Old Testament. You are called to speak God's words in your time and in your city, the city of Ephesus. This is a very high calling and a very high privilege, Timothy. Understand what line that you fall in. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, the, the men in, of God in the Old Testament, God spoke to them directly, and they would say, thus saith the Lord, and they would literally speak His words. But Timothy, is that the way God was speaking, speaking to you, just directly? Interestingly, the other time this title, Man of God, is used and given to Timothy is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, which describes how Timothy is to speak God's words to God's people in his time and place. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may, complete, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Timothy's job is to keep his finger in the text. Timothy's job is to preach God's words and show how God's words apply to God's people both here and now in his time and in his city, and in his place. And this is not just true of Pastor Timothy, what it will characterize for him to be a good pastor in Ephesus, but it's true of every pastor that walks in Timothy's shoes in a different time, in a different place, that they would preach the Word of God. They would see that the Scripture, all Scripture being God-breathed, profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So the first quality of a good pastor is the good pastor always keeps his finger in the text. So what he preaches is not his words, 
It is whose words? God's words. The next thing we see about a good pastor is this. A good pastor knows when to run. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, I know that doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound very masculine. If you're a good pastor, you know how to run away. Sounds sort of wimpy. But why it may sound wimpy, friends, it's actually quite, quite wise. He says, flee these things. Now, these things sounds very generic. And you, if you want to see what these things are that Pastor Timothy has to be a good pastor and flee from, you have to go back to the these things that we were talking about last week to see what they refer to. And here's some of the things that he was referring to that Pastor Timothy should be good at running from. Run from people that love quarrels. Avoid people in the church that just love to fight. That there are people in God's church that all they do is crave quarrels. That is not just true in the ancient church of Ephesus, but you know it's true in the modern church as well. Probably names are coming to mind of people that you have known over the years in churches that every time you get together with them, they have something to complain about, someone to fight about, and someone to gripe about. And the truth is, they don't just do this now in the church foyers, but they do this on the internet. They're bloggers, they're Facebook posters and posters, and almost every post they have is what's wrong with a certain pastor about what's wrong with a certain ministry or what's wrong with a certain church. They're always craving a quarrel. They're known for not building people up in the church, but they're known for tearing people down in the church. When you think of their name, you don't remember what they stand for, but all you can think of is what they stand against because they crave quarrels. Now, here's where it's interesting. Sometimes these people who crave quarrels actually point out things that are legitimately wrong and legitimately issues of concern. So there's truth. When there's truth, that's what gains traction. But look at how people like this point it out. They usually point out problems in a very critical and uncharitable way. They don't want resolution, do they? They just want more problems. These are the kind of people that Paul says to Timothy, you must avoid. And for heaven's sake, please don't be ever become one. Known for who you stand for, Jesus Christ, not in always who you stand against. The second thing we saw of what he should run from in an earlier section was this. Run from people that think ministry is all about money. He says, avoid people who think godliness is a means to gain. This is avoid people who preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Now, I'm not too much into a lot of these uh, health, wealth, and prosperity preachers that are out there. So I did a little YouTube search. As Pastor Jordan and I were researching back and forth, we sometimes like text each other ideas back and forth. And so I texted him what I found on YouTube which is a guy named David Taylor. Now, I do not know this guy at all, other than the fact that I watched his deposition when he was on the witness stand about how he was spending his money. And they were asking him how he could spend thousands and thousands of dollars on Louis Versace clothing. 
And I'm thinking like, dude, that's more than I've spent in my life in one of your wardrobes. And his answer in the witness stand is, well, well, I sweat through them. And I'm thinking, dude, it's called a washing machine. It's like spray and wash. That's all it is. You don't need a new wardrobe. Now, but the truth is that many times people love to be in the ministry for money. Because they love to be the center of attention. They love the wealth and, and prosperity that comes with these kind of things. And we learned last week a couple things. We learned that behind all heresy is greed. That's true. That's what motivates heresy. Stay away from preachers that are all about money. In fact, he says, last week we saw Paul said this, if you have Jesus, food, clothing, and shelter, you have enough. You came to this world without pockets. You're going to leave without pockets. You've got everything you need if you can survive and you have Jesus Christ. That's all you need. Now, there's a couple other things that Pastor Timothy needs to flee from. He doesn't say it directly in this text, but it, Paul talks about things we need to flee from in other parts of the Bible, like this. Flee from sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Folks, let me tell you this. You flee from sexual temptation. You never negotiate with sexual temptation. You never sit there and face sexual temptation and look at it and think about it and say, I will not do this. I will not do this. Because you know the way temptation works. The book of James talks about it. It says temptation works like a fish and a lure. Here's the way it works with a fish and a lure. The fish sees the lure and goes, that's a lure. It has a hook in it. I'm not going to bite it. But the longer you can get the fish to look at the lure, slowly the fish talks himself into actually biting the lure, where his cravings and desires overwhelm his common sense. And it's the same way that temptation works for each one of us. When we're facing temptation, especially sexual temptation, what the Scripture says every single time is you don't negotiate with it. You flee from it as fast as you can. Because the longer you look at it and say, I won't give in to this, I won't give in to this, I won't give in to this, what are you doing? Talking yourself into giving into it. That's why Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. It's always the way. You flee. So if you're going to be a good pastor, you've got to be a good runner. You've got to know when to run away. Another thing to run away from, he says, is this. In 2 Timothy 2.20, says to Timothy, run from youthful lusts, or so flee youthful passions. The word passions here is epithumia, which means intense cravings. It's I have to have this usually because everyone else has this. You know how that goes. you got to fit in with the Joneses. Now, when I was young, the girls were usually into designer jeans. I know this is a dated example, but this is what came to mind. Ladies, do you remember wearing guest jeans? 
okay, maybe it was just rag rip. But it was the deal. And it came to high school, it was like the girls, they have to wear these guest jeans, designer jeans. Everybody has to have them because everybody has them. And there's this intense craving that you had to fit in with everybody else. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He says, don't let your values and morality be determined by a group think process of your peers. Don't let your values and morality be determined by the group think process of your peers. I have to do this because everyone else is doing this. As a pastor, run away from that. Learn to think for yourself. So a good pastor knows when to run. He runs away from quarrels, runs away from money, runs away from sexual temptation because you don't talk, otherwise you talk yourself into it. And you run away from youthful lust, the things that people have to have. But it's not just about what you run from to be a good pastor. Paul says it's also about what you run to. Now, a good pastor knows what to, he says, pursue. Let me just mention this, by the way, at the beginning as we, before we dive into this, when it comes to dealing with sin. If you are dealing with sinful desires and cravings in your life, and you say, I'm really struggling and I can't beat them, you have to understand that you don't just try to run from sin. You need to run to something else that's positive. I'll give you an example. Say you are struggling with drinking, and you find yourself... Every Friday night, I end up sitting home, I drink and I drink until I get drunk. I'm going to run from sin. So I'm going to sit home Friday night, stare at the wall and say, I will not drink. I will not drink. I will not drink. How well is that going to work? It's not going to work at all. You're going to fall right back into it. You can't just run from sin. You run to something else. Friday night comes, I'm going to go do something positive with my time. I'm going to go hang out with my Christian friends. So at my drinking time, I'm doing something that is good and godly. Even if you don't necessarily know what to do, at least go bowling. I mean, bowl the ball. Do something positive with your time instead of sit home and say, I won't drink. Now look what Paul says that Timothy is to run to. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. A lot here. Let me go through these rather quickly. But I want you to realize that he's put them here in three pairs of two. Every two of these is connected in the original language. Let me show you what I mean. He is to run after righteousness and godliness. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness means to be in a right relationship with other people. He is to go out of his way to make sure that his relationship with other people is in a state of being what is right. Even if that hurts, you humble yourself and you do it. I was thinking about that, and it came to mind as Psalm chapter 15, and it describes what a righteous person is like in the beginning of Psalm chapter 15. Let me just show you this and jump to what it says in verse 4. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your hill? 
He whose walk is blameless and does what is right. This is the righteous person. Then he goes on to make some descriptions. And then in verse 4 it says this. This is one of the qualities of righteous person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. A righteous person keeps his word to other people even if it really hurts. That's the definition of what it means to be righteous. Now, not only is Timothy to be righteous in his relationship with other people, but it says he's supposed to be pursue godliness. While righteousness is primarily dealing with our outside relationships, godliness is primarily dealing with our inside relationships. The character and the tone of our heart when nobody else is looking. Godliness is what you're thinking about when you're laying in bed all by yourself. Godliness is what you watch on television when nobody else is home. Godliness is what your web browser history says you are actually looking at. Godliness is what you say about others behind their back when you're, in, when you're in the comfort and security of your own home. Timothy, you want to be a good pastor? You pursue, put energy into chasing being a man who is righteous with other people in godliness in your inner world. And here's how they tie together. Righteousness on the outside always begins with godliness on the inside, doesn't it? Because what you are in your outside world is actually just a reflection of what you are on your inside world. You pursue those two things. The other two things he tells him to pursue is this, run after faith and love. Faith, that is trust in God, isn't it? Trust in God's wisdom, trust in God's ways, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. I have faith that God knows what he's doing. That things are actually all together when they feel like they're all falling apart. That's what a man of faith is, right? A great trust in God. So, Timothy is to pursue being a man of faith. And when the world falls apart, he is to think back on the stories of like Joseph, when Joseph's life was falling apart, and Peter and Paul, when their life looked like it was falling apart, and confidently say and be, you know what? God's got it all together. It's all under control. Because a good pastor has lots of faith. But here's the problem. Sometimes a pastor who has a lot of faith can become sort of stoic, cold, and distant. Can you picture this? Someone comes into their office and they say, well, I just lost my job. And the pastor says, have faith. God's got it all under control. My child's in the hospital. It's okay. God's got a good plan. Cold and indifferent. That's why he pairs faith with love. Because a good pastor loves people, don't they? They cry with those who cry. They weep with those who weep. It's not just about 
that I have faith in God's plans and God's wisdoms and God's ways. But I love you. I can cry with you. Pursue those two things, Timothy. Not just righteousness and godliness, but be a man of faith and love. And then he says this, also pursue endurance and gentleness. Or as the text literally says, steadfastness. And this word steadfast literally means to remain in place under great pressure. Now, I used to be a wrestler. And as many of you can tell, that was a long time ago. But one of the things they used to have us do as a re- in wrestling was they would get us in the push-up position and have us go halfway down, and they'd say, you have to just stay there. You know, like 10 minutes into this, grown men are crying because it's painful. It's painful to stay in that halfway push-up position for a long period of time. But you had to remain there under pressure. And this is what Paul says, if you're a good pastor, remain there under pressure. When it seems like ministry is falling apart, things aren't going well the way you planned, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Remain there under the pressure. Even when you don't see progress, even when you go home and you put your head between your knees because you're completely discouraged, don't give up. Don't give in. But he couples it with this word gentleness. Now, here's where it gets interesting. This particular word in the Greek is only used one time in the New Testament. And it's right here. And what this word gentleness means is it means this. It means not taking your anger out on people. Can you picture this? Here is Timothy remaining under pressure, Life is hard, and somebody fails him. What does he want to do? Suck it up! Come on, we got to hold on! It's not gentle. He is to couple steadfastness of himself with gentleness and kindness to the people he works with. These are the things he is to pursue, to run after. So a good pastor is known for what they run from. It's known for what they run after, but also a good pastor is known for what they will fight for. And he says a good pastor is a fighter. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, for many of us, this idea of a pastor being a good fighter is a completely new idea right here. The word for fight here is the word agonizomai, which is where we get our word agony from. It's commonly used in the Greek to describe somebody in a military or athletic venture, a person who has great discipline, drive, and desire to stay in the game and win no matter what the cost. It is a never-say-die athletic attitude. I am going to keep going and keep pressing until I win. It's a hardcore fighter. The perfect example of this is like from my generation. Remember Rocky Balboa in the ring? Like, hit me again. Keep going. He won't say die. It's not a glass jaw. It's a steel jaw. And this is what Timothy is to be like when it comes to being a fighter. Doesn't never says die. But here's the question. What is Timothy to fight for? Just anything? 
If you actually go to Jude chapter 3, it talks about what pastors should fight for. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, to write appealing to you to what? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To fight for the faith. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In the ancient world and in the modern world, there are always people who creep into the church to introduce heresy or error, to deny Jesus Christ. And what is a good pastor to do? To fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Fight for what the Bible actually says, not what people wish it said. That's exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, how does a pastor fight? Here's what he does. He quotes books, chapters, and verses. Where other people will quote bloggers, philosophers, and sociologists. It's what you do. You quote the Bible. Now, look what Paul said about his life when he was coming close to dying here in 2 Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's job, as you read many of his books, he was fighting for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And he was to do that in his generation. Timothy was to do that in his generation and in his place of Ephesus. And a good pastor is to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints in his generation and in his time and in his place. Let's jump to the backside of your outline. It'll go quickly as we get to the end here. What else is a good pastor to do? A good pastor won't let go of Jesus. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This word, take hold, is another rich word. You know where it's used? It's used to describe when Jesus told Peter to come walk to him on the water in the Sea of Galilee when the storm and the waves were raging. And what did Peter do? He looked at all the wind and the water and he began to sink. And what does it say? And Jesus took hold of him. The hold that it talks about here is the kind of grip you have on a drowning man. It is a forceful grip where you do not let go because a life hangs in the balance. And what does he say here? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Hold on to Jesus Christ in your ministry no matter what may come your way. And you and I know that many people have started well as a pastor, but they finished poorly as a pastor. And what have they let go of? Jesus Christ. The fact that they are sinful. The fact that they have nothing good in this world. 
and the only good thing they have going in their life is Jesus Christ. But his ministry went on. They sort of let go of that. I think to some degree what is going on here is a reminder of Matthew chapter 13. You remember the parable of the soils? I'm not going to recount all this, but Jesus talks about seed that is the Word of God, and it falls on four different soils. And one of those soils that the Word of God falls onto is rocky soil, where it springs up, the seed does, real quickly, but as soon as the heat of the day comes, it withers because it has no root. And what Jesus says, that's like people who hear the Word of God, who respond in faith, but as soon as they go through some trials and persecutions, they fall away. They started well, but they didn't finish well. They let go of it. Other place that the seed falls is among thorny ground. The seed sprouts up well, but then it's choked out by the thorns, Jesus says. And what Jesus says, this reminds us of people who begin well in the faith, but the cares and the pleasures of this world distract them. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, they're so busy with the things of the world that they completely proved unfruitful for Jesus. They let go of Christ. Began well, but didn't finish well. And Paul says, don't let go of Jesus. Hold on to him. And then he says this, a good pastor plans to finish well. I charge you, Paul, or I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is the test, so in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. This word charge literally means command. He says, Paul commands Timothy under the pressure, under the heat of the battle, under the difficulty of the ministry that you are engaged in, remember who was watching you the whole time? God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are seeing how you run. Remember Jesus who had a good confession. Now, what does that mean? What it's talking about is, you remember when Jesus was whipped, and he was beaten, and he was brought before Pontius Pilate, and they asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Knowing that if he answered truthfully and honestly, he would go to the cross. And what does it say happened? Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. Jesus was faithful to his heavenly Father under great pressure, even when it cost him his life. Timothy, you be faithful to God the Father under the great pressure of ministry you endure, even if it costs you your life. Be faithful. Keep going in what you, knowing what you must preach, which is God's Word. Knowing what you must run from. Knowing what you must run to. Keep knowing what you must fight for and what you must hold on to. Keep going until you see Jesus face to face. Whether that means you die or He returns. Finish well in the end. And then he says this, remember, remember a good pastor knows whom they serve. You are serving the one who is the blessed and only sovereign, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, the one to whom him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Pastor, or Timothy, what does it take to be a good pastor? Preach the word. Know what to run from. Know what to run to. Know what to fight for. And hold on to Jesus. Never let go. And keep going. Keep going. All the way until you see Jesus face to face. That's not just Paul's charge to Timothy, but it's Paul's charge to pastors today. And it's also a charge to every single one of us who provides leadership in Christ's church. Whether it's worship, teaching, life groups, or Awana. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this very clear charge of what it means to be a good pastor and what it means to be a good leader for you in your church. May we always be people who keep our finger in the text, but not just our finger in the text, but our lives pure for you. Knowing what we have to run from and what we must run to. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.